Kathy brought my stool for me this morning. The moon stool. I won't tell you what she said you do with that. <clears throat> well, good morning. As Mike mentioned, this coming Thursday is Thanksgiving. <clears throat> and I'm sure that many of us, in fact all of us, have a lot to be thankful for. And that in itself could be a topic of study. But as I thought about this, um, thankfulness, giving thanks, some specifics came to mind in my own personal life. And I thought if I put a list together, what would be the first thing at the top of my list? And it would have to be that God, in His infinite wisdom and His grace and His mercy to me, sent His Son to die on the cross for me. And because He did that, I can call myself a Christian. And I know that I have eternal life in His kingdom. And that's great. That's wonderful. It's a perfect end to the story. Spending eternity with Christ. We know the end result. And each of us knows the beginning. We know when we became a Christian. We know when it started. Some of us may remember the exact day, the time, the month, the year. And that may be very important to us. You know, when we're born, the hospitals record all that information our weight, our length, the time, the day, and that's important. That day our lives changed. We became a new person. So we know the beginning, where we started, and we know the end, where we're going to be in eternity with Christ, but what about in between? What are we responsible for as a Christian? How are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to think? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? If you remember, Stan taught here a month or so ago about character versus reputation. What God knows about us compared to what man knows about us. And that was a great teaching. It opened my eyes. And as I thought about that, I'm going to piggyback a little bit on that today. Right on his coattails a little bit, so to speak. And we're going to talk about how we are supposed to live or behave as Christians. What kind of example are we supposed to set? The text we're going to be looking at, if you have your Bibles with you, is in Romans. And it's in chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. And I'm just going to read through this real quickly. Paul's writing to the Romans, and he says beginning at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with, we, excuse me, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. 
Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And lastly, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now there's a lot there this morning, and we're not going to have time to go all through that. So basically, we're going to look at verses 9 through 13. So when we study Scripture, we know that if something's repeated... It's important. God wants to get our attention. He wants us to know what He's saying. Verse 1 says, Let love, and I'm going to stop it right there, because love is very important. It's extremely important. And if you look in the Bible, love is repeated hundreds of times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Paul, when he was writing this, he knew the importance of love. I don't think it was a coincidence that this was the first thing that he put in our rules, so to say, or our guidelines of a Christian life. In Matthew 22, the Pharisee is trying to trick Jesus into saying something that they can use against him. And he asks him a question. He says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus quotes... Deuteronomy 6.5, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with the emphasis on love. And that would have been enough. But then he goes forward, and he says, And the second greatest commandment, and then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, he says, Love thy neighbor as thyself. Once again, with the emphasis on love. Love's the key, and Paul understands the importance of love. In fact, if you were to summarize maybe the Bible, and someone would say, well, just put it into one word for me, I I truly believe you could say love, especially the New Testament. Remember John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him shall have eternal life and never perish. That's the key. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul, he's writing about the qualities or the attributes of love. And he says, at the end of chapter, verse 13, And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Again, Paul's confirming what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. There shouldn't be any doubt that love is important in our lives. Probably the most extreme important thing. But then again, that's not all there is to it. Because he adds, after he says, let love, he adds, be without hypocrisy. As a Christian, our love should be genuine and it should be sincere. There should be no other motive than the welfare and the well-being of others. A few years ago, does anyone like to watch the Super Bowl? 
A lot of people watch the Super Bowl just specifically to watch the commercials, and that's okay. <laughs> I like the game, but that's okay. I don't remember three or four years ago there was a commercial in the Super Bowl, and the commercial started with this scene of these three gentlemen sitting on this dock or a pier or in a pond or a lake or somewhere. And once you could see a little better, a little closer, you could tell that one of the gentlemen was a little older than the other two. And it was quiet, and they were all just sitting there fishing. And the one kept looking over at the older gentleman. And finally he gets up, and he walks over, and he puts his arm around him, and he starts telling him, Dad, how great you are, and I really appreciate everything you've done for me, and you've, you've done all these great things, and, and you just brought me out here to fish, and it's just wonderful. And, and then he says, I love you, man. And his dad says, you can't have my beer, Johnny. <coughs> that, that's the kind of love that we do not want to express. <coughs> the only motive there was for his own selfish purposes, okay? We can stay away from that, and we'd be just fine. Now, last Sunday, whoever was here last Sunday, right over here, there was a big stack of those Christmas boxes. And whoever participated in that, I'm sure the children around the world are going to be very thankful for that. But not only that, and not only was there some toys and some very needed items in those, health items and things, from our family, there was a lot of love that went into those boxes. Because we know that somewhere in this world, a a little child is going to get that box. And when they open that... uh, You can't buy that feeling. There's just absolutely no way. It's the love that we put into that. We have no idea where those boxes were going. There's no way we could. What country they'll end up in. But we can be sure that that child somewhere is going to experience the love that we put into those boxes. And that's what it's all about. It's love. And he says, without hypocrisy, it's true, it's sincere, it's genuine. It's the mark of a Christian. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. That's the guidelines. That's where we need to be. So moving on next, Paul tells us, the tail end of verse 1, he says, Now, after he's told us we need to love, he says we need to abhor evil. And abhor means basically to loathe, to hate, to despise, to want no part of. We know that evil is wicked. It's sinful. It's harmful. It's completely void of goodness. Proverbs 8.13 says the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. And that's our thought. The first thing we need to do, excuse me, is to identify what is evil or who is evil. And there are some things that are are blatantly obvious in this world. Illegal drugs, there's pornography, there's abortion. <coughs> some of the music that they make today is just terrible. It's just awful. And there's a lot more that affects us all. But what we need to do is identify in our own personal lives because that's, that's the key there. We all have weaknesses. We're all sinful. And we all fall to temptation. We're all susceptible to temptation. If something is causing us to sin, whatever it is, 
If something is causing us to sin, if it's causing us separation in our relationship with God, then we need to get rid of it. We need to cast it out. In fact, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching, and in this particular instance, he's teaching about adultery. And adultery is obviously very evil. And he says, If your right eye causes you to sin or to do evil, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish and for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now what he's saying here is that the sin or the evil in our lives sometimes must be dealt with in some drastic measures. That doesn't necessarily mean that he wants us to go out and physically hurt ourselves because that's, that's not what he's saying. But it's the evil in our lives that we need to abhor. It's that we need to hate, that we need to avoid. Edmund Burke, who was a British political writer back in the 1700s to early 1800s, he wrote in a book, and I haven't read the book, I have to admit, but what he wrote was, When bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. Now, the watered-down version of that, so to speak, or the quotation from that is, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And when you think about that, once again, Paul told us to abhor evil. He didn't say to ignore it, okay? And Jesus just told us in Matthew 5, that if there's evil in our lives, if there's sin, we need to cast it out. That brought to me the story, to my mind anyway, of Sodom and Gomorrah and how evil that city was and how they were warned many times. And God finally just decided that he was going to take action. And we know the story. Think about down through history, too, people like Hitler. And going back to that quote, for good men to do nothing, to allow evil. If we would have let Hitler get by, let's let him keep going to do what he was doing, what would have happened? Where would we be? We don't know him because it didn't happen that way, but this is the exact thing that this quote is referring to, is not allowing evil to, pro- <coughs> to, excuse me, to prosper. You know, we're taking the Growing Kids God's Way class, and it's been very enlightening to us, and there's quite a few of us in here that have either taken it now or have taken it in the past. And we just studied this last week about obedience, about sin. And sin in our lives is inherent, okay? We don't need to be taught to be sinful. Our children don't need to be taught to hit their brothers and sisters. They don't need to be taught to say no or to get mad and throw fits. All of those things are inherent. They need to be taught obedience. It's the sin, it's the evil that's in them, so to speak, that we cast out by obedience. The bottom line is that evil, some is obvious and we can all see it, but some it's not. Satan has a way of disguising his intentions in our own individual lives. And each one of us needs to determine what the evil may be in our lives and cast it out. On the flip side of that, 
Paul tells us next, though, to cling to what is good. So hold on. Don't let go. This is where we do what we know is right. Fellowship with our Christian brothers and sisters, studying God's Word, prayer. The list goes on, and it may be different for all of us. Paul again wrote in Galatians 6.9, he said, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Good is safety, it's security. I thought about this too, and any of us that have young children, when I'm carrying one of our twins, they're not just flopping all back and forth and just expecting me to hang on, they're hanging on to me. They've got their arms and they've got their legs wrapped around me, and they're hanging on tight because Dad is their security. He's their safety, and he knows, like we know, that God's not going to let us down. He's not going to let us fall. And that's the thought we need to have even as adults. If we let go of what is good, the outcome may be disastrous. If we cling to what we know is good, our hope is not to fall in to our own evil desires. In verse 10, Paul says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. This is how Christians should treat each other. This is how we should fellowship with each other. We should be devoted to each other, just as brothers and sisters should be in a family unit. You know, when we think about family, we think about mom, dad, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. But right here in this room, And in the rest of this building, we're a family. It's a church family. And our responsibility, as Paul writes, is to be kind and affectionate to each other with a brotherly love. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Paul says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It's God's mandate. Paul's not telling us that. God is. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus is preparing to leave, and he's telling his disciples that he's leaving. And he says to them, And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Three times in that verse, those two verses, Jesus says to love one another. Once again, that's our mandate. Not only is this the right way to treat each other, but it's also how we can show the rest of the world that we're Christians. One of the ways we can show them that we're Christians is the way we treat each other. I think the point Paul's trying to make here is that our brotherly love to one another, it's, it's more than just a feeling. It's emotional. It's an action. It's showing respect. And it's helping each other, and it's doing things with each other. But most importantly, doing things for others. Then he says, in honor, giving preference to one another. We should show a genuine appreciation to each other as Christians. Our motives should be for others, not for ourselves. There should be no other motive than to just please God and help others. 
Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Paul writes again, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. And that's the same thought. That's exactly the same thought. Paul is referring here to believers and the interaction that we should have. But this would be appropriate behavior to everyone. Just because someone's a Christian doesn't mean that, that uh, or they're not a Christian, I'm sorry, that we can't be kind and affectionate and, and generous and courteous to them. Opening a door, letting someone go before you at a, at a food bar or something like that. That's just common courtesy. Those are the things that we should be doing. And doing others, doing those is many, <clears throat> and many other things. It's just a way of showing common courtesy and respect. Verse 11, he says, Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Most of us have probably heard the old saying, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. If you're going to take the time and effort to do something, why do a crummy job? Ecclesiastes 9.10, listen to what Solomon writes. I love Solomon and his interpretations and his writings. He's always right to the point. He says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Think about that for a second. It's repeating the same thing. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And Solomon understands that we only have a short time here on this earth. And if we're going to spend the time and effort to do the right thing, we need to do it well. We need to put forth the effort. We need to work hard. And diligence is an attitude. It's a desire to want to be the best you possibly can. And that's in whatever you're doing. Half-heartedness and indifference or a lack of diligence, not only can, but will keep us from doing good. It, it just happens. It's just part of the formula. But also, by doing that, we may allow evil and sin to prosper. Remember back to the quote from Edmund Burke, that doing nothing or maybe not doing as good a job can cause evil to prosper. God wants our best, not just whatever we can come up with. Remember in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer. And they each brought an offering to the Lord. And the Lord respected Abel's, but not Cain's. And in verse 6, it says, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Cain's attitude at that point was wrong. His heart was in the wrong place, and his lack 
of diligence and his lack of desire is what put him in that spot. And we know the rest of the story there. In Colossians 3.23, Paul writes, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man. And I love this one because, especially for me at work, because sometimes it's difficult there. And when I think about working hard and working hard for the Lord, and that regardless of what transpires at work, if I know, if I feel that I've done what I can for God's sake and for His glory, then whatever else happens there is just out of my control. If we... That's our guide. That doesn't mean that we're to disrespect man, but our goal is to please God. And by doing so, we can't help but please each other. He says, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And fervent means to show warm feelings. A literal term may even be to boil in the spirit. That means we're hot for God. The thought here is we should be producing energy that's productive to our service to the Lord. And you might have heard someone say that they feel flat. They're spiritually flat. They feel that their relationship with the Lord's stagnant. It's dull. I have to be honest. I've been there. I know exactly what that feeling is. And I've had periods where it seems that I'm just going through the motions. And usually when that happens, I can attribute it to the fact that my quiet times are lacking My time that I spend with God is just not there like it should be. I'm not diligent enough. I'm not reading. I'm not studying. I'm not putting God's food for me to nourish my body. And if we're not putting forth the the effort, the the results are not going to be what we want them to be. Again, we should serve the Lord, not half-heartedly, but with an enthusiastic spirit. And we can serve the Lord by serving others. Verse 12 says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly in prayer. We say rejoicing in hope. Now the hope that we're rejoicing in is in Christ's return and what we can expect. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all have loved his appearing. So our hope is not in just Christ's return, but it's in the redemption that Christ brings in his return. It's the crowns we'll receive. It's talked about crowns in the New Testament, and it's not real specific on those, but in three places, in James and in Peter and in Timothy, He gives us a little bit of a hint. James talks about the crown of life. 1 Peter talks about a crown of glory. And 2 Timothy talks about a crown of righteousness. And there may be more. But one thing for sure, when Jesus said to his disciples he was going to his father's house to prepare a place for them, he was also going to his father's house to prepare a place for us. And we can count on that. Our next instruction in that same verse is to be patient in tribulation. Being patient is something that many of us have some trouble with. It's a difficult thing 
especially in today's society, in the world we live in, it's a, it's a society of instant gratification. We don't like to wait. We want things now. But Paul's not telling us to be patient in our own desires or our own needs. He said to be patient in tribulation. Life is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. We know it is. It already has been to many of us. We've suffered through a lot. Deaths in the family or whatever it may be. We've suffered. And we also know that life as a Christian is going to be very difficult because, once again, we're told that it is. The tribulation is going to come. The trials are going to come. And we know we're going to experience hard times just because we're Christians. These organizations that we help support with Voice of the Martyrs and the Gospel for Asia, uh, if you've read any of their literature or seen any of the magazines or, or brochures that we get, there's some horrible stories in there about how Christians around the world are, are persecuted and how they're, they're martyred today just because they're Christians. And Jesus told his disciples, he said, the world will hate you. And Paul himself was certainly no stranger to difficult times with everything he went. And I'm not going to get into that, but we know the story of Paul and and all the trials and tribulations that he went through. But he kept going, he endured. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, Paul is reminding Timothy of all the persecution that I just mentioned that he's gone through at Lystra and Antioch. And he says at the end of verse 11, What persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. And that's our model. We know it's coming. And we know that the Lord can deliver us if we persevere and we endure and we're patient in our tribulation. We know it's coming. He's taught us through the Word how we can handle it. He said that He's never going to put us through anything that we can't handle. We know that God, if it's in His will, will deliver us. So we can be patient in our tribulation. The last verse here we're going to talk about, verse 13, is distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. Distributing can be translated into a commonality or a fellowship or or sharing or having something in common with someone else. And Paul often referred to the believers in the New Testament as saints. And we all understand that we belong to the kingdom of God. So when a brother or sister has a need, then we more or less have an obligation to help them with that need. In 1 Timothy 6.18, and this again was referring to believers, Paul writes, Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, and ready to give and willing to share. We should be unselfish and generous, giving what we can when we can. That's, that's the model. That's our guide. That's our goal. Hospitality. He says, given to hospitality. And it certainly is entertaining 
I mean, that, that would be one of the things that we would want to do entertaining our friends. But it's more than that. I mean, think about in the New Testament times, when people were traveling back then, it was dangerous. Um, and there wasn't a Motel 6 on every corner that they could go and stay at. Christians at that time often opened their homes to travelers because it was the right thing to do. And not necessarily just other Christians, but sometimes to complete strangers. In fact, in Hebrews 13.2, it says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And I thought about that, and it's like, could you imagine taking someone into your home and finding out later that it was Jesus? In Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking, and he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you took me in. That's our hospitality. That's, that's what we're commanded again to do. And not only should we extend it to our friends and family, but Paul encourages us to reach out to those that we don't even know as well. We have to remember that all our friends were strangers once. Hospitality opens doors and creates relationships. <clears throat> well, we covered some ground this morning, set some standards, maybe even opened a few eyes. And in closing, I just wanted to throw out this question, and I'm sure many of us have heard this. But if it was illegal to be a Christian, which in many countries it's almost, it might as well be, but if it was illegal in this country to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Let's think about that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to be here this morning. And Lord, we know that as we've looked at this scripture today, that there are so many things in our lives that we are responsible for, so many things that we're required and commanded to do for one another as well as ourselves. And Lord, we know that our goal is to please you and to glorify and edify you. And that by doing and following these instructions and rules, so to speak, that we're on the right path. Lord, we know we're, we're not perfect, and we never will be. But Father, as long as we have Christ in our lives, as long as we have His redemption, then we know, Lord, where our, <clears throat> where our final destination is, and that's to be with Him. As we go out this week, and as we interact with those around us, whether that be at work, or whether that be at school, or wherever that may be, just out in public, uh, may we remember these thoughts, and may we uh, be hospitable, and may we be kind and affectionate and courteous to our fellow man and our fellow Christians. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you for this day. 
In Jesus' name, amen.